Good morning again, folks. We're going to dive straight in to our study this morning, but uh, just before we do, let's let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for what this study means. Lord, for the time in the Garden of Gethsemane and the trials that Christ went through on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that Luke takes the time just to lay it out for us and show us so many wonderful things. But Lord, we thank you that uh, your son was willing to do this for us. As we come to the crescendo of the Gospels, to not only the, the suffering and the death of Christ, but to the resurrection Lord, we can't help but get excited about with anticipation, but to get to the good part of the story, to get to the part where you overcome it all. But Lord, till we get to that point, Lord, help us to learn from the trials. Help us to learn from the parts of suffering. Lord, we struggle with that. We struggle to learn in the, about the, in the times of suffering. We struggle to learn from the times of suffering. But Lord, help us to look at you and to see glory, to see wonder, Lord, that it might fill our hearts with strength. And so we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, folks, uh, look, 22, then we'll start in at verse 39. Then, uh, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. Now, you see, in the Bible, there are three gardens that are really worth drawing your attention to. There's the Garden of Eden, which is the garden where human history begins, where human sin begins. Then, according to the last chapters in Revelation, there's a garden-esque city uh, where human history will accumulate in the new earth. We're given a description of that in Revelation, where a pure river of life, as clear as crystal, proceeds from the throne of God. And in the middle of these first and final gardens is the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is the garden where the battle was fought for you and I. It's where the battle was decided upon by our Lord Jesus Christ. Life begins in the Garden of Eden. New life begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the first garden, Adam failed with his sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam, or Jesus, uh, who is called succeeded in that battle and reclaimed what was lost by the first Adam. In the first garden, the Garden of Eden, Adam ran and hid from God. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ presented himself to the will of the Father, not running away, not hiding, but instead saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, Gethsemane, it sits at the foot of the Mount of Olives. I've been there. It's a really steep walk down into the garden. But the garden at the time of Jesus and even still is full of olive trees. And that was used in the garden as an olive press. Now, olive oil it is the best part of the olive. The, now, the oil doesn't come from the skins or the meat of the olives. It comes from the pit of the olive. So olives are crushed and, and, and the oil is collected. And olive oil was used from fuel, lighting lamps, cosmetics, eating. It was just a staple of the culture and still is. Because the value of an olive, the greatest value of an olive, though it's good for eating and for seasoning, the greatest value is the oil. And you can only extract the oil when you press it. Now, little fact about olive oil, if you crush the olive, you get a lower quality of oil because there will be pulp in it. But if you press it, it's more time consuming, it's more tricky, but the quality is better. The oil will burn better, longer, cleaner. So the greatest value of an olive is when it's pressed, that's when it's most productive. 
But hopefully you get to see where I'm going here with this. Because in Isaiah 53, it's predicted that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised or, or pressed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. It's in the place, that intermediate garden, where Jesus produces the most value. He's pressed with the temptation and the trial sins of the world are being laid on him. And he's accepting that burden of going to the cross as he wins that battle for us. I, I know some in the church have been to the Garden of Gethsemane. I know many of you haven't. But if you ever do get a chance to go, I, I hope you take it. But if not, I'll say this. We all have our Gethsemanes. If you know what I'm talking about, we have our own scary places, the dark seasons, the dark experiences. We walk into them, we don't like them, we dislike them. It's painful because it feels like we're being crushed out. The, the world is pressing in on us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we're told what, that we are pressed but not crushed. But let's read those verses in the King James because it says that we are troubled on every side, yet we're not distressed. We're perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed. This is one of the biggest aha moments for me, standing in the shadow of the olive tree, pressing the olive in the mill. It's not cruelty on the olive. It's the way you get the most, uh, the most value out of the olive. Keeping this perspective is how we can be troubled on every side and not distressed in life. Pressed to the point of being crushed, but not being crushed or destroyed. You pray that David will deliver you from a member of David saying, Do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? And we have those times where it feels like the world's crushing us. And some of you may feel that this week. You're living out that experience of what it means to be crushed. And you go, God, why? Why is this happening to me? It's because he wants the most value to come out of your life. That's why. And that's why Jesus went through it as well. Verse 40. Then he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away, but a stone's thrown, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. What does it mean, the cup? It's a metaphor that speaks of the trial that he's about to go through. The cup of suffering is a metaphor in the battle, but also it's more than a cup of suffering. It's a cup of wrath. Uh, I wonder if you knew that, but in Revelation talks about the cup of the indignation of the Lord. Isaiah, Jeremiah spoke of the cup of fury of Almighty God. So what you have to understand here is when Jesus went to the cross, it's not just this little trial or this inconvenience that God went through for us. It wasn't just that he was dying and physically suffering. He had to accept the cup of wrath of God on all of sin committed in all of human history, past, present, future on his body. That's what Isaiah meant when he says he was bruised, pressed for our iniquities. But he was not destroyed. Now, the very next day, he'll drink this cup. The very next day, he'll hang on the cross. The very next day, he'll feel what it's like to be separated and abandoned by the Father because of sin. And he'll cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If it's your will, let this cup pass from way. But nevertheless, not my will, not what I want, not what I wish, but your will be done. Let me just boil this down, if I can, to the irreducible minimum. Jesus is saying, if there is any other way that humanity could be saved, then let's do that. If mankind could be saved by religion, then let's do that. If it can be saved by being nice, let's do that. If it can be saved by being sincere, then let's do that. If we can be saved by committing to recycle, then great, let's do that. But God, if this is the only way mankind can be saved, then my death by my death on the cross, then not as I will, but your will. 
There's submission coming after that wrestling. Verse 43, then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Only Luke mentions the fact that an angel appears. Angels have been unable to minister and serve the son during his earthly ministry. Uh, certainly not in the way that they were used to before he humbled himself and stepped into human form. But it seems that one found an opportunity to come to strengthen the saviour. Dr. George Morrison wrote, every life has its Gethsemane, but every Gethsemane has its angel. Which I think offers some wonderful comfort if you're struggling at this time. Every Gethsemane has its angel. Verse 45. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. Grief is what has tired them out. Grief can work like that. Anyone who has lost someone recently, they'll be able to tell you. They'll be able to tell you that there's a point in the grieving process whenever your body just oh, needs to shut down. You become exhausted. And so these disciples fell asleep. Now, maybe they shouldn't have, but they did. They're exhausted because of grief. I can't be hard on them for this. I mean, I'm the guy who sets aside time to pray. And it's an almighty struggle not to get distracted by some thought that could become a sermon or by a family or by some a dozen, a hundred other things that could claim a worthy amount of my time. So verse 47, but even as Jesus said, there's a crowd approached led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priest, the captains of the temple guard, and the elders who had come from him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary? He asked that you come with me at swords and clubs to arrest me. Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I've been there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. I wonder, have you ever thought how Judas felt as he was watching all this unfold? Was he smug? Was he embarrassed? Was he afraid? Was he self-righteous? I wonder how the other disciples felt watching him, watching this happen. As they not only watched someone who they trusted betray him, but come with a group, a crowd, armed He's got numbers with him in case it gets violent. It just shows you how little Jesus knew Christ. But listen to John 18 puts it. Verse 4, John 18 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And so Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And Jesus said to him, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. I am he. And the soldiers fall to their knees. That's awesome. I love John just noting that, that at the name of Jesus, knees bow. And as they then muster their strength, Jesus asks the question, okay, who is it you're looking for? If it's me, then these other guys can go. Let them go free. There's the gospel, folks. There's the gospel right there in the garden of John 18. Because that's how it works, isn't it? What, what, are, what are you facing? What, what's the pain that no one knows about what, what are you facing when it all feels like all of hell is coming against you whether it's your marriage or your family or your health and your ministry and it feels like oh what is going on the gospel is jesus saying okay devil look you take me instead and you lose your claim on them anymore you've got no hold on them anymore but let's go back to luke 22 verse 48 jesus says jesus would you betray the son of man with a kiss when the other disciples saw what was going to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And then 
Peter, we know it's Peter, strikes the high priest's sleeve, slashing his right ear. Now, Peter comes forward. I'm not having this, Jesus. I'm not going to allow this to happen. Not on my watch. I'm going to help Jesus. I'm going to do something. In one sense, I can see part of myself here in Peter. Because as I read this, the message of God uh, is just so clear for me. Jesus says, okay, look, Jeff, you got to put your sword away as well. No more of this. But, but God, there's so much going on. There's so much that I can do. I've got to find my way through this. Satan's at work. I've got to fight. I've got to keep busy. I've got to keep doing stuff. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to preach better. I'm going to pray more. Jeff, no more of this. Put your sword away. But, 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 no. But Jeff, you're no match for the power of hell, Jeff. You're no match for the power of sin in your own life, Jeff. Your character isn't strong enough to sustain you or withstand the attack from the enemy. You're insufficient, Jeff. You're not good enough. You're not enough for this fight. So look, church, listen to me very carefully here. It's time to put the sword away. James 1.20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. All the striving and all the effort, all our coming and going, it amounts to nothing. If it was not for Jesus and for his grace and his love, we would have nothing. So put the sword away. And, you know, I think we're really starting to notice that in the last couple of weeks, we've had no organisations, no committee meetings, no running around up and down to a building. And yet I've never seen the gospel more frequently come up on Facebook or, or preachers having a chance to share the gospel with people and churches reaching out to their community. We think that all this work that we do and all this busyness, all our victory is going to be wrapped up in what we do. Here in the garden, we see Jesus saying very clearly, look, it's time for you to stop resting in what you're doing. Trust in what I'm doing. So put your sword down. Trust in me. Look, I see myself in Peter in this moment. I see it in how I try and work. I mean, I'm so far out of my depth trying to be a pastor, trying to minister to a church. Who am I to lead a group of people? Who am I to be a shepherd? What can I say? Certainly in times like this. So what do I do? I try to take my sword out and I work harder. I try and fight my way out of it, raise my kids, teach them and do it all myself. Fighting against the Judas in me, fighting against the Peter in me. I'm going to pick up my sword. I'm going to do it all. I decided to put a sermon out every day of the week this week to come up to Easter. You know, because, hey, I got to work hard. I got to be in the fight. Jesus had told Peter earlier that day, like, you know, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times. Peter is overcompensating here. There's no way I'm going to stand down here, Jesus. There's no way I'm going to let you down. And so I try hard and I pick up my sword and I'm doing it all because I'm aware of my ability to feel. I'm aware of how many times I have failed. And my biggest fear for our churches as we go forward is that we might think that if we take on our swords and if it's simply about working harder or working better or working smarter and getting the right strategies and principles in place that will save the world but who told us that who fed us this lie oh we're going to save our friends no we're not well i'm going to preach better sermons well they're not going to work i'm going to fight my way out 
No, you won't. Stand back, brother and sister in Christ. Put down your sword and let God's son do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You're insufficient. He is sufficient. Take me, Jesus said in John 18. Let them go free. Go and live in freedom. Folks, I wonder how bad it is. How bad it's been hurting you. How overwhelmed you are by ministry and trying to live this perfect life. Are you feeling crushed by the expectations of church? How high is that mountain that you're trying to climb? How often have you said, I can't even do this anymore? Because you're right, you can't. So put your sword away and stop striving. Stop fighting and start trusting in him. Start resting in his sufficiency. Isn't that what Christianity is all about? It's about him, his beauty, his majesty, his wonder, his supremacy, his power, his awesomeness, his sufficiency. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news. Yet not I, but Christ in me. There's a power that can change the world, that can change your world. But it's not found in striving, but in yielding and submitting to him. Folks, you are going to make it. Your children are going to be fine. Your marriage will be fine when we bring it all to him. By the way, good thing to remember, this is the last recorded healing of Jesus in all of the Gospels. The last recorded healing of Jesus in earthly ministry is healing a man whose disciples hurt. Peter cuts a guy's ear off. And I believe it's a miracle that Jesus still does most often today, cleaning up after our mess, healing those people that the servants of God have hurt. I know a lot of Christians and they love using their swords We've got the Bible, the sword of the spirit, and I stand alone in the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And we love to slice and dice all around us. And we'll leave the bride of Christ all bloodied up and unbelievers hurt and wounded. All in the name of discernment and holiness. And we need Jesus to fix that, don't we? If that's the way you use your Bible, you've got to put that sword down too. Verse 54 of Luke. So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it and Peter joined them there. Now, just so you know, a high priest in Israel is a high priest for life in Judaism. It's a lifetime appointment. Uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, he's been there, but there's another high priest, uh, although not officially sanctioned as a high priest, uh, but everyone saw him kind of in that kind of light, the big dog, the authority, the one who wielded just a wee bit more authority than Caiaphas. And that's a guy by the name of Annas, A-N-N-A-S. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, okay? So Caiaphas picked up the reins officially from his father-in-law, but Annas is still calling some of the shots. People are still listening to him. Caiaphas was the guy that they sanctioned, but everybody looks to Annas. He wielded the most power in reality. So even though not officially, but in reality, there was two high priests in Israel at the time. So Annas, he controlled the temple and the concession stands, Think of it as kind of like, you know, the, the stadiums around and he owns, he's the guy who owns the hot dogs and the beer places, the pizza place. He kind of gets all that and gets a slice of all the money and the proceeds from it. So in the temple there, there's buyers and sellers, remember? All the tables and exchanges, the doves and the lambs for sacrifices. Annas and his family control that money stream, that those revenues. Jesus had hit Annas quite hard. He hit it where it, where it matters, in his pocket. Twice in his ministry, once at the beginning of his ministry and then just on Palm Sunday. He overturned the tables, he whipped them out, drove them out of the temple and he's mad. And so he wants Jesus dead. So Peter follows at a distance. So Jesus comes to trial now. 
before the Jews. And what you need to understand about the trial of Jesus is that it really wasn't a trial, but six mini trials. He's brought before Caiaphas, the standing high priest. He's brought before Ananias, the one that has the influence. That's at night. Then the next morning, the morning of Good Friday, he's brought before the ruling body of the Sanhedrin. That's number three. Then he's brought into the Praetorium before Pilate. Pilate tries him. That's trial number four. Then Pilate finds out he's a Galilean, ships him up to Herod Antipas. That's trial number five. Herod kind of goofs around a wee bit, messes around, sends him back to Pilate for a verdict, which is trial number six. So this is the beginning of that. He's at the chief priest's house. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus's followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know. And then after a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else said, this must be one of them. He's a Galilean. But Peter says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. What is significant in, is that all four Gospels record Peter's denial. Significant because all four Gospels only record a, f- a few number of events uh, the same. Usually you've kind of got John going a slightly different way and Matthew and Luke kind of have different emphasis. But here Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all betray the denial of Peter. Poor Peter, all his mates are kind of writing about him behind his back. It's in all the newspaper headlines the next day. Everybody knows So whenever something is mentioned in the Bible four times, I don't know about you, but I think God's really trying to tell us something. I think when it comes to Peter's denial, what we have to realise is this isn't something that just happens overnight. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's a step-by-step process. Number one, you see Peter getting cocky. I'll never deny you, Jesus. All those other guys will, but I never will. Isn't that what he said? Remember way back, Peter said, you know, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter. Jesus says, you got it right. God revealed that to you. I'm sure Peter thought, yeah, I am right. Yeah. He says, I'm going to call you Peter now. I'm going to call you the rock. Peter probably walked around going, yeah, I'm the rock star. (laughs) And then Peter tries to cover his guilt by feverish service. We've talked about that already. And I find this with believers who come back from out of sin in the world. They've blown it, so they want to come back to church and they want to come back strong and want to get involved. I really want to get busy and just have to, it's tempting, but you have to say, whoa, 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 that'll come. But let's let's get you back on the bench first. Let's get you back in with the team first. Let's get you in with the people first. Let's get you settled and discipled and, and, and focused first. Let's not try to cover up with some sort of feverish active activity. That'll come in time. But you see, then he's ashamed to identify with Jesus. I don't, know who this guy even is but i want you to remember this because we've all failed in the lord in some place in some time was jesus shocked that peter did it no he anticipated he he predicted it but notice that jesus also predicted his restoration you're going to be recovered you're going to go on then and restore your brethren do that that's that's your commission that's your ministry peter So Jesus knew he would fall and that he would fail. Jesus also anticipated that he would be restored and be used again, which is beautiful. One person said that there's three stages to Peter's life. At the fire, under fire, and then eventually on fire. But I'll come later. Verse 61. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. 
Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. Thinking about the rest of Peter's life, I wonder what goes through his mind every time he heard a rooster crowing. Was it denial? Was it the failure? Was it that look that Jesus gave him? Was it the grace of Jesus to restore him? I believe that cock-a-doodle-doo would forever be an encouragement for Peter and encourage him, not a sign of failure. Why? Because it shows Peter that when that rooster crowed, early that morning or late that night, whatever exactly time it was, it showed Peter that Jesus was in control, even of that. Yes, even though he's been arrested and in prison, he's in control of those events. He's predicted what would happen. He's in control of everything that's happened so far the night, from Judas in the upper room, right up to the arrest, right up to everything that's happening. He is being in control. Peter will remember the Lord who has been able to control the fish. Throw your nets over the side, Peter. And they catch many fish, the nets start breaking. He's in control of human disease and healing people. He's in control of demon spirits and casting them out. He's in control even of roosters. He's in control of everything. I think that'd be an incredible encouragement to Peter to live with once he got into perspective. But let's move on just very quickly. Verse 63. The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us. Who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. Now, the trial hasn't even begun yet, but they're beating him. They are delighting in inflicting pain. I believe that someone should be treated as innocent until they are proven guilty. Jesus is being treated as if he was guilty before any evidence has even been presented. But we see this more and more today. You hear about the court of public opinion. Arrogant people hiding behind their keyboards and pronounced judgment on all sorts of worth of people. Not thinking the impact that it has, the type of behaviour has a huge impact on mental health issues in our country. It's led to suicide of all ages because people hide behind their keyboards. Now I'm going to skip over the trial section or the six mini trials. It goes into the halfway of, uh, of chapter 23, but read them for yourself. Notice a couple of things though as you go through which is that this trial process is all just for the paperwork. It's all for show. It's never been about justice, this trial. It's all about justifying murder. The Jewish writings known as the Mishnah highlights 18 rules that have to be employed at a capital case trial for a capital offence. Let me just give you four of them. I'll give you rule one, two, three, and 12. Rule number one in the Mishnah, no trial for a capital offence can ever happen at night. It has to wait until the morning. Even if the offence, excuse me, uh, that the offence is known at night, it must wait till the next day after the morning sacrifice. That's rule number one. Rule number two: No trial for a couple of offence can happen during a festival or on a Sabbath. Now, what festival is happening at the moment? It's Passover. So they broke rule number one and rule number two. Rule number three in the Mishnah, it can never be done in private. It has to be done in the open. It has to be public access. The court has to be accountable. They've sequestered Jesus away. Only a few of them at night are there. Others will find out about it in the morning. Rule number 12, the fourth one that we'll mention. Um, no high priest is allowed to interrogate the prisoner. Yet two high priests privately interrogate the prisoner at night during the festival Passover. They're breaking the rules. This is a sham. They were illegal proceedings. I've just noticed it's getting a wee bit dark. I'm going to go turn the light on. I'll be back. Hold on. Uh, that's maybe not helped too much, but hopefully it's working. Um, these were sham uh, proceedings. They're just papering over this thing to get it through the office of government to get him crucified. 
even though the Mishnah says the model of the Sanhedrin, the model is supposed to be that the Sanhedrin is about saving life, not destroying life. That's their motto, but it's not their method. But in the end, they get their verdict. And look, as the one writer who bothers to give us the charges that he's convicted on. The others don't because we know that there's no merit to their case. It's, it's, it's flawed, but Luke gives us the detail. He's a doctor. He likes giving just the, the attention to detail. So the charges that Christ was crucified for, number one, subverting the nation. False. Jesus wasn't trying to overthrow the government. Charge number two, forbidding people to pay taxes. False. Check Matthew 22, verse 21, Mark 12. Third charge, claiming to be Christ. Ha <laughs> ha, but that's true. Matthew Henry comments on this by saying that there are none so blind as those who you will not see. Everyone involved in this trial proceedings is guilty of this willful blindness, Pilate in particular. Three times in Luke 23, verses 15 to 22, Pilate will declare Jesus innocent. Verse 15, verse 20, and verse 22. He'll say, this man's innocent. I want to release him. I can't charge him with anything. Three times in the space of eight verses. Look, through Pilate points us to the innocence of Jesus. The innocent of the lamb who will be slain for us. Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. Pilate can't find Jesus any, find Jesus any guilt deserving of death. Our hero is innocent. And it's not only in those verses throughout chapter 23, Look, will be at pains to draw our attention to this. It's a major theme in these chapters coming up to this cross. Yet Pilate sought to try and wash his hands of us, and yet doing so, we have a wonderful truth in all of this. His innocence will be highlighted three more times on the cross, and it will be contrasted to, Bar uh, to, to Barabbas and the thieves on the crosses beside him. So as Pilate releases Barabbas, the guilty, and delivers over to death Jesus, the innocent, we have here a picture of our own release affected by the cross through faith. In Barabbas, we have a glimpse of our own guilt deserving of death and a snapshot of the grace of Jesus and the cross through which he'll set us free. Christ, the innocent, takes the place of me, the guilty. Luke wants us to see this, so put down your sword of trying to do everything by yourself and rest in the work that was done for you that you can never do by yourself. He has paid our debt. And tomorrow, on Good Friday, we'll, we'll just take our time and we'll look at that scene of the cross and that wonderful, wonderful sacrifice that was made for us. I pray that this has blessed you. God bless.